There once was a man from Quebec who invested in unprofitable tech. His portfolio tanked, and he himself banked nothing, and now he's a wreck. Another man, who's basically a skeleton, bought too many shares in Peloton. His position went down, and with a sigh and a frown, he made the difficult decision to sell it on. A third man, who was really an armadillo, decided to buy into Zillow. The AI went wrong, and he hoped all day long that he'd wake up with his head on his pillow. Genuine impacts not one of them had. That's why their investing went bad. If they downloaded the app and avoided the traps, they could have been much less sad. The app could have shown them the way to diversify their holdings today. Buying different things, which most likely brings better returns. Or so they say. Our show has Chris Hill as its guest. He knows about how to invest. He works at The Fool, and their podcasts are cool. So really, you should be impressed. If you'd like to be more like Chris, pin your ears back and listen to this. Genuine impact your thing to help you to win and to make your investing life bliss. I'm amazed how many people own stocks. Welcome to the Playing Footsie podcast. My name's Paul and each episode me and the lads get together to talk about the stocks, stock market news and finance in general. Quick disclaimer, you shouldn't consider anything in this podcast as personal financial advice. If you need such advice, go to a financial advisor. And please remember when investing in any form, your capital is at risk. So sit back, relax and let the lads fill you in with all the stock market news of the week. The sucker's going up. Welcome everyone to the Playing Footsie podcast. I'm Steve W. Paul and Steve D are with me and we have a very special guest on our show this week. It's Chris Hill. We're thrilled to have Chris with us. For those of you that don't know, Chris hosts the daily podcast over at The Motley Fool. He's also the voice behind Morgan Housel's book, The Psychology of Money, and he's very kindly agreed to come and have a chat with us on our show here. The show that has literally dozens of listeners. Chris, thanks for being here. It is my pleasure. Thank you for asking me. (laughs) So, Chris, you've been the the voice of The Motley Fool for for 25 years now, I think, this year. Um, So thinking back to when you first applied, did did you think you'd end up being the voice of The Motley Fool? Was that the plan when you signed up? It was absolutely not the plan. I've I've been at the company for almost 25 years, but my background is in communications, um, media and public relations, that sort of thing. And that's that's really what I did for the first dozen or so years uh, at the company. And kind of fell into podcasting uh, in the wake of the financial crisis. Um, we had had a radio show for a number of years that uh, David and Tom Gardner, the co-founders of the company, had hosted, mm-hmm. first on commercial radio and then on NPR, and uh, uh, stopped doing that in 2006. And like a lot of businesses and, and certainly a lot of financial companies, we were the Motley Fool was struggling in the wake of the financial crisis. And... Um, uh, really tried Motley Fool Money as a first as a weekly podcast, just as an attempt to see if if we could do it, and w- and we knew we wouldn't be able to rely on David and Tom. And so once we figured out sort of well, what does this show need to be, um, and we knew it needed to feature our analysts talking about the week on Wall Street and sort of helping people make sense of what was happening in the market, we realized oh, we don't need the host to be the smartest person in the room, and. Uh, I've maintained that status ever since. Yeah, Paul we does also, a good job of that. We, we also have a similar similar feel <laughs> here on the podcast, to be honest with you. Um, oh, yeah, that's, that's brilliant. So, 
uh, just because I might have to go at some point during this, I'm going to slip in my question first. And um, uh, I, and I'll, I'll say this joke again because I've already said it about Chris on the first time. Because uh, in case anyone doesn't know, no, Chris, actually, you did narrate the audiobook uh, Psychology of Money, yes, um, which is an incredible book. Uh, and you know, I'm guessing you know Morganhausen quite well. Um, I do. Yeah. So this is very odd for me, just to, for the listeners, just to say that my audiobook is now talking back to me. <laughs> uh, it's really, really strange for me right now, <laughs> especially as I listen to you so much on the Motley Fool podcast as well. And I'd love to hear about your take on the stocks. But the first thing, because you've mentioned the um, 2000 uh, uh, stock market crash, I just want to see if you can describe what the feeling was prior to that crash and uh post that crash as well because i'm i'm trying to find people who were invested because i'm very new to investing so i'm trying to find people who were investing during that time and maybe even previous to that and everybody's talking about the market being overvalued at the moment um uh, and whether that's important or not because i know at the motley fool you all have different uh investing theories and and behaviors um I just want to know what the feeling was there prior and uh, post the the market, and is it different this time? Is is I guess the question I'd ask. So the feeling itself, for me anyway, is not different. The feeling I was uh, telling someone this recently. But it it always feels bad when when this is happening. It felt bad in. 2000, 2001 with the dot-com crash. It felt bad at the end of 2008, 2009. There is, um, and particularly if you pay more attention to it, as investors like us tend to do, um, there's almost a spiraling effect that that is happening when it's going on, that everything seems awful. And it just seems like, oh my gosh, everything's going to melt down. And as happens, as we saw in the wake of 2001, as we saw in the wake of 2008, 2009, yeah, there are some businesses that take hits that are permanent, um, but the market as a whole um, always rebounds. There's, it's, it's easy to forget how much institutional money has been created, how much wealth has been created on an institutional level for funds um, et cetera, uh, you know, ETFs, et cetera, over the last 20 years. And that money needs to get put somewhere. Um, fund managers aren't paid to keep money in cash. And so there's, there's always going to be a moment where, uh, you know, after the smoke clears, that investors, big and small, start looking around and saying, okay, where are we going to put our money to work? Um, but just in terms of the gut feeling, Paul, yeah, it's uh, earlier this year, um, it, it sort of felt like, oh, right, this is what it felt like in 2008, 2009. <laughs> um, but there's a point where things start to bounce back. Nobody, nobody ever gets upset when the opposite is happening. No one ever gets upset when it's like, well, this not very impressive company reported not very impressive earnings, but the stock's up 10% after hours because everything's amazing, you know, and we're, we're at the moment in an environment that's the exact opposite of that. 
where large profitable companies are putting up impressive quarterly numbers and their stocks are selling off. So, but you know, this, the, the old saying, this too shall pass does hold. That's amazing. Uh, it's interesting to hear. I, I'm very interested in the psychology of investing more than valuation and things like that. Cause I do believe probably like you guys believe as well, um, that, time in the market is beats time in the market and it's all about your investor mindset rather than really particularly what you're investing and that comes from a lot of of, of you guys just a personal question then what were you invested in in 2000 and even 2008 to see what stocks went down particularly for you and how did you keep yourself in the market and continuously investing and, and uh, I suppose the Motley Fool helped with that a little bit, but uh, I was just wondering what techniques you can use for that. So part of it is figuring out ways to separate what's happening with the stock uh, from what's happening with the actual business. Uh, in 2008, 2009, um, a company like Starbucks, which I've owned for a very long time, it's actually my largest individual holding you know that was a stock that was that was really getting hit. Um, it it might have been a little overheated. It might have been a little overvalued or richly valued at the time. Um, uh, but it, you know, when a stock of a profitable growing business sells off forty percent, one thing I like to do is look at the business and say, okay, is this business forty percent worse than it was when the stock was higher? Hmm. Um, you know, I, I will say I don't do a lot of buying and selling of individual stocks. Um, I subscribe to the Charlie Munger approach of, um, we like to buy great companies and then sit on our ass. And that's, that's kind of how I like to be. I, being a day trader sounds utterly exhausting to me. So I have hmm. no interest in that. So a lot of what I was doing in 2008, 2009 was just holding steady with the stocks that I had. Um, I didn't have a huge cash, uh, cash position at the time. Um, so I, it wasn't like I was really looking to deploy uh, strategically. Um, I, I happily enough now um, have a little bit of a cash uh, reserve. So over the last six months, I have been looking um, more strategically at some of the stocks that have sold off and, and thought in terms of, okay, where can I um, put this money to work because again, if it's a profitable business, it's large, it's not going anywhere. It's growing. Sometimes you look at a stock and you think, okay, if you're going to sell me shares of this company at that price, yes, I'm in. That's interesting because there's a few stocks right now, which I'm sort of looking at and going, well, should I be looking at valuation or should I be just looking at the fact that they're a, they're a brilliant company? I, I think the first one in my head that pops to mind is like Costco, which seems ridiculously overvalued at the moment, but an excellent company. And I think I took a, a little sneaky look at the stocks that you hold. And I think you've held Costco for quite some time, haven't you? So uh... <laughs> I have a little bit of Costco, but I, but I only came into that recently um, through an inheritance. So, so, so one of the, um, I'll tell you the, the, the two investments um, that I, through my own fault, missed out on and missed out on them both in the same way. I was talking with someone at The Motley Fool 
who was very smart. One, in, in the case of Costco, it was Bill Mann, who's a very smart investor. Um, and in the case of Visa, I, was, I remember having a conversation, I think right around about 2007, 2008, um, talking with Jeff Fisher, um, two of the smartest investors I know. Uh, just over coffee, and uh, they were sort of laying out in each of those conversations why they loved Costco and Visa and what it was about the business that impressed them. And, and, and I just sat there and absorbed it all and thought, well, that's interesting. I guess I'm never going to buy that stock because I'm an idiot. So I, I would be even better off if I had just <laughs> bought those two. Um, but, to, you know, to, to your thinking, Paul, I, I think this is a time I don't spend a lot of time on valuation. But uh, one of the ways I've evolved as an investor, I guess, is I, I pay a little bit more attention to price. We talked recently on our show about the acquisition uh, that Berkshire Hathaway finally made after six years. They bought Allegheny. And one of the things I said on the show was, uh, let there be no doubt that price matters to Warren Buffett that they went out of their way to point out to their shareholders, we paid less than 1.3 times book value hmm. for this. Um, so I'm, I'm not nearly um, uh, the valuation person that Warren Buffett is, um, but, but I, I do try to pay a little bit of attention to that, but mostly I'm looking for a business that I think has a long runway, 10, 20, 30 years out of it. Yeah, I think that's, that's the thing, isn't it? Is it? I, I think when people talk about buying great businesses, particularly Warren Buffett, that the valuation does definitely come into it uh, a little bit more than they actually kind of say. But ultimately, like you say, it's a, buy, buying uh, great businesses a good good value or, or cheap value. But uh, I, I just want to point out there because I found something, uh, an old interview, well, an old interview, a whole, an old chat with you and Tom Gardner the other day. I showed it to the guys. And if anybody out there is, is listening or wants, uh, or wants to go through this, this is 2013. Uh, search for it on YouTube. It's Tom Gardner and... David. Uh, it was David, I think. Oh, sorry, uh, David Gardner and uh, and Chris Hill talking about Tesla in 2013 and saying how it was a great business at the time and saying, oh, my God, the price has gone up so much recently. And to look back now and go, oh, that was a big that was a big price price rise. And then 2020 happened. Uh, I can't imagine the changes there. But uh, again, valuation really wasn't. Um, a big part. Of, it wasn't a huge part at that time, but th that was when it was you know, possibly great business. And, and we can have the argument about valuation now over Tesla. I, I don't know if that changes anyone's uh, opinion right now. But um, yeah, I just thought it was a very interesting conversation and a very interesting throwback because you've been doing this so long. And I, I, I just went, oh, these guys were talking about Tesla in 2013. And like it, like it was like, like you could foresee it happening. You and you and David uh, for seeing it happening. I was just very interested. Sorry, I've hijacked your questions there, Steve and Steve, uh, just at the start there. You must have plenty more you need to ask. Sorry, but, before getting to the questions, I'll, let me just um, uh, add that uh, uh, David Gardner um, has a vision unlike um, few investors I've ever encountered in my life. That conversation was, uh, I was part of that conversation. David is the one with the vision on Tesla to um, to see where that company was going, what the potential for that business was. Um, and Tesla, another stock I have never owned, um, have, have missed out on the ride on, but, the, you know, but that's okay. 
So, just thinking a bit more then, generally, Paul's kind of done a pretty good job of foreshadowing some of the stuff that we've got here. I was going to ask you a little bit about how, you're, how you characterise your kind of approach to investing, I guess. Um, echoing Paul, it takes all sorts at The Motley Fool uh, to make an investing community, and different people think various different ways and prioritise various different things. I picked up on you said you look for companies that, you have, that have sorry, what you were calling a long runway. Um, what kind of thing does that mean by a long runway here? So one of the things I've gotten more comfortable with as uh, I've gotten older um, as an investor is recognizing the parts of the market, the businesses, the industries that I don't really understand, that I'm probably not going to understand, and becoming more comfortable with just letting those parts of the market go. Um, you know, like I said, Tesla, I missed out on Tesla. I was probably never really going to understand Tesla. Um, I, when I think about companies that, that have a long runway, um, I'm, I'm thinking about businesses first and foremost that I understand because there have been times earlier in my investing life when I was buying shares of company and when pressed, I didn't really understand what the business was doing. I didn't hmm. really understand how they made money. You know, which is such a great way to start when you're looking for ideas. Like, you know, can you answer the question, how does this company make money? And then do you know how they're going to make money in the future, more money in the future? Because that's really the pathway to uh, a stock going up into the right. So for me, it starts with, is this a business I can understand? Is this um, a business plan for the future that I can understand? And then at some point it comes down to, do I believe this? Do I believe this management team? Do I believe that they can actually accomplish this? And if I discount their optimism, because I'm sure you guys have seen it as I have seen, there are some CEOs out there who are very bullish on their own companies and yeah. their own prospects and, and what they can accomplish. Hmm. And sometimes it's healthy to say, I'm going to discount what you're saying. And you know, even if it's a, a restaurant chain or a retail shop, and they say, over the next five years, um, we want to double our store count. Well, you know, even if over the next five years they just increase their store count by 50%, that's still growth. That's hmm. still meaningful. Um, uh, and then uh, lastly, Steve, I, I guess I would say I, um, I'm not great for spotting trends, but if I ever do have a sense of what David Gardner refers to as the way the, way the world is going, um, you know, that that was part of his uh, thinking around Tesla. You know, the world is going towards electric vehicles, and this is a company that is at the forefront of that. So anytime I can look at a business and say, okay, is there a trend here that I think um, is growing over time? Um, the most recent one for me is cybersecurity. I think if if you're an investor and you have a portfolio of 25 to 30 stocks in it, it's a good exercise to look at your stocks and say, where is the cybersecurity in my portfolio? And if you can't find any, then spend a little time and go and, and you know, maybe even buy a basket of a couple of different, you know, three or four different ones. Because um, I think cybersecurity is such an important industry. It is a growing industry. It is getting larger, not smaller. We need more of it. So um, th that's <laughs> one example. 
me and you, Chris, have both uh, we've both bought Okta, uh, so um, or we both have Okta in our portfolio. So, so perhaps me and you have picked the wrong one. Uh, we shall see, I guess. Yes, um, I think Okta is um, Okta is going to be fine as long as this recent breach remains a one-off situation. Yeah. If it happens again anytime in the next twelve months, I think a lot of investors are just going to run for the hills. Well, we've mentioned a few different stocks there. We've mentioned Starbucks that you own. We've mentioned Okta that you own now. Um, obviously, two companies which probably live at different ends of the value speculation um, spectrum here. So my question now is diversity. Is, is it still important or do we, should, we, should we concentrate? I do think uh, diversifying is important, and I think the the younger you are and the the longer you're investing in the market, um, the more risk you can take. But, but risk is a very individual thing. You know, everyone thinks they have a a risk tolerance that's high until their portfolio drops thirty percent, and then you find out what your risk tolerance really is. Um, I. Um, miraculously uh, managed to time the top of the NASDAQ a year ago um, as the time that I went in to buy Okta and nine other um, high-growth companies. Um, as a group, the, that uh, basket of 10 stocks is is down pretty significantly. There, there are a couple that are doing okay. Um, but I look at that within my own portfolio as um, it, it's not a large percentage of my overall portfolio. Mm. So I'm not selling out of those. I look at those as when I bought them, I wrote down on a post-it note, the number 2031. Because I thought these are stocks, I'm just going to hold these for 10 years, I'm not going to touch them. Um, and so I think that now is not necessarily the time to go into um, those types of businesses, you can, um, personally, I'm not. The the stocks that I've been buying over the last six months or so, um, taking the cash that I've had and, and deploying it strategically, um, I've been putting into uh, proven companies, uh, companies that uh, large, profitable, have some measure of pricing power um, that I, I don't have to really think twice about. Um, they're not going to disappear overnight. Um, they're not going to get acquired by someone larger. Um, and, you know, again, back to those those 10 sort of growth stocks, uh, it's entirely possible that by 2031, a couple of them are not around. Um, it's probable that a couple of them are uh, hovering around 80% uh, lower of where I bought them. But my expectation is that um, there'll, there'll be a couple in there that are, are really driving uh, the overall growth of that group. Cool. So, Chris, we a good portion of our listener base are, are, are young investors. So they're um, they're in the sort of twenty to thirty bracket, um, which in the UK for for investing is in, is incredibly young, really. Um, so we get asked a lot of questions about um, what advice they would regularly what, 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 sorry, what advice they would give their younger selves. Um, so I, I guess you know you might be the best person to give it from from perhaps a career and an investing perspective. 
as the much older person in this conversation, Chris, you're the person we want to ask. Um, <laughs> we just look young. <laughs> he, does, he does this a lot. He, he just uh, he sideswipes people all the time. <laughs> could be worse, um, Chris. He could have told you that it wasn't about being clever when you're hosting. <laughs> Chris, I had to put um, my age into a calculator today to figure out how old I was. Um, so, yeah, I'm at that <laughs> age. <laughs> Um, so I think in terms of advice for my younger self, um, again, when I think about the lessons I've learned, one is, um, the importance of getting a good night's sleep. If you're losing money over your investments, you're doing it wrong. Um, uh, that's happened to me a couple of times in my life where I've, I've owned stocks and I've literally woken up in the middle of the night when I was much younger. And I just thought this isn't worth it. I need to, you know, I need to get out of this thing. So I think, I think listening to your gut instincts on something like sleep, I think that matters. Um, patience is difficult, uh, but it is so important. Um, you know, this is something Morgan has written about a lot. You know, just sort of uh, sometimes the best move is just doing nothing, um, holding on. You know, the uh, I mentioned Starbucks. I mean. Uh, there was, uh, it's, it's my biggest holding. Um, it's, um, one of the best performing stocks I've ever had. Um, there are years in the time that I've held Starbucks where it has fallen, uh, 20, 30% in a single year. Um, there was a three year period where it basically was flat for three years. If you looked at it just from the start of that three-year period to the end, um, in between, it dropped dramatically and then bounced back up. But for all intents and purposes, it was flat for three years. Hmm. You know, that's not easy. It can be a little frustrating. Uh, as investors in stocks, we want to feel like we're doing something. Um, and are you buying but, during you know, that time? Were you buying still, like continuously buying during that time? I really wasn't. No, um, I, you know, I got, I, I set up a dividend reinvestment with Starbucks. So, you know, I guess, in, you know, I was getting more shares as a result of that. But, um, you know, my favorite stat about Warren Buffett is that 99% of his wealth was accumulated after the age of 50. Hmm. And, it, you know, it really is something it's, you know, if, you, if you're a young investor, if you're in your 20s and you have $1,000 invested, you know, and it goes up 5%. And it's like, well, now I have 50 more dollars. That's not exciting. That's not fun. You know, I get that. Um, but to the extent that you can see yourself 20, 30 years in the future when that, you know, overall portfolio value is so much greater, then those, you know, a 5% gain becomes dramatically larger. Um, so I, I think, the, you know, those those aren't necessarily fun pieces of advice, but hopefully they're helpful. But I, I really do anchor to the, um, to the idea of understanding the businesses you own in. You're just, it's just going to make for a better investing life because you're going to feel more confident about your ability to judge how this business is doing. Yeah, I think we've had a few great people on here that we've spoken to who are uh, really experienced in investing uh, or, or an investing guru. I don't know if you call yourself that or, or, or you know. I absolutely um, would not. <laughs> of course you would. Of course you would. But I would say you're extremely experienced in investing. But it, it's still, even these people that have come on with us, Brian was one that was, that's been on recently, he, they, they come with the same advice. They come with the same 
um, uh, thesis, time in the market, compounding, uh, and, and, and ultimately that, uh, and knowing your businesses. And that ultimately that seems to be the key that everyone seems to understand. And there, are, I don't know about you guys, but I haven't heard anything really big outside of that. I mean, well, I'm sure we'll, we'll see David. We want to see David one day and see what, see what he can bring. And he has a totally sideways look at investing, which is really, and obviously has paid off. But it's great to know to know that everybody agrees on this time in the market. Starting young is your best weapon within within investing, and it's great that we've got some people here that listen to us and on my channel as well, which are 23 years old. And every time they tell me on Instagram as well, they say, "Oh, I'm 23 years old and I've got four thousand pounds invested in the market," and I just go, "Oh my God, that is so brilliant!" You know, you are. I said it today, actually. I commented back on back to somebody today on my Instagram, and I said, "Oh my God, you are going to be so rich!" <laughs> uh, I, I just I just can't believe it because I look back at my uh, myself when I was 23, and I had no understanding of this, and I started very very late, and I've I've made it a mission of, to to figure out how I'm going to do this, uh, and then. And generate some wealth uh, late, quite late in, late, quite late in life, a lot later in life. Carry on, yeah. Well, just the other thing I'd say is, um, you know, advice for for younger people. And this is something I didn't really wrap my head around until probably in the last ten years or so. Is that you need to understand that you are playing a very different game than most of the investors who are getting a lot of attention. Hmm. You know, investors like us who are investing for decades, that's very different than a hedge fund manager who has to report results on a monthly and quarterly basis. Yeah. And so sometimes you get caught up in a situation where there's a lot of trading going on because, you know, it's not a knock on the business. It can be a good business, but if you're a fund manager and you need to take some profits uh, just to show good results, then you're going to sell out of a good company. Um, there are also um, plenty of money managers out there who don't let their winners run. And so yeah. they're selling out of great companies because they say, look, I'm never going to allow any single position to get larger than 5% of the overall portfolio or whatever it is. And so so they they keep trimming their shares of Tesla every time it bumps up against uh, that five percent threshold or whatever it is. But you know, all of your listeners, they're they're just we're all playing a very different game than the professionals are. And um, it, it, the longer you stay in it, uh, the more lucrative the game becomes for people like us. Um, so just returning to something you said before, actually, for what it's worth, Chris, I mean, you mentioned this about sort of 20 year old investors, but certainly this is true of both Steve and myself, probably also Paul, but maybe to a lesser extent, uh, the way we've been investing lately, I feel like either of us would get extremely excited by the way about a 50 pound gain on a 1000 pound investment. Uh, we'd just be happy to see anything <laughs> yeah. that's not red mainly, but, um, that, that wasn't part of my question. Uh, what I was going to ask on a slightly different, um, tack. I mean, you can say David Gardner to this if you want, but, um, on the full podcast, you get to talk to quite a lot of really interesting people, uh, who have some really good insights into loads of different things. 
I was wondering whether there was someone that you thought investors like us should pay more attention to. Maybe someone we don't get to hear from as much. So someone you think is kind of quietly underrated. Uh, it can be someone at the foot, or it can be someone from kind of outside. But um, I kind of do a lot of thinking about different full analysts. And there are some that I really, really like listening to that um, get more and less airtime than some of the other ones as well. But I wondered who, who you think would be really good for us to kind of hear from. Uh, I'll give you two. One mm. in the company and one who recently left the company. Um, Emily Flippin is someone who shows up on Motley Fool Money um, whenever we can get her. Um, she's in her 20s. She is uh, just a brilliant investor. I love uh, the way she thinks. Um, she's great at explaining why um, she feels a certain way about a business. Um, um, I find her very willing to talk about um, challenges that a business is facing. Um, so it's refreshing, you know, particularly when um, we're in a time opposite from the time we're in right now, where it's, where, you know, where it's everything is going up. Um, you know, Emily is, is one of those people I think is, is, has the ability to say, look, let's, let's pump the brakes on this a little bit there. You know, here, here are the challenges I'm seeing. Hmm. So Emily Flippin is one. Aaron Bush is another um, Aaron is, uh, I think, also in his 20s, maybe he's 30, um, recently left um, The Motley Fool to um, uh, join uh, sort of a side hustle that he had started uh, a few years ago, just built around the gaming industry and, and the metaverse. Um, and both Emily and Aaron Bush are on Twitter, um, easy enough to Google them and, and find them. Um, Aaron is someone who knows more about gaming the business side of gaming and the metaverse than anyone I've ever talked to. Um, and I think that, um, the, you know, those are two investors that I would encourage um, your audience to, to seek out, find them online, whether it's, you know, our podcast or, you know, other articles that they're publishing because um, they're just brilliant and they're going to be around much longer than I am. Aaron's pretty hot on crypto as well. I seem to remember uh, he did the the chat with David uh, on crypto, and that was that was pretty informative. Yeah. Um, okay, so um, we'll we'll move on to uh, another little aspect. So, I mean, anybody who's listened to the full podcast knows that you're uh, you're a bit of a, a storyteller. Um, so, one of my favorites that I've heard you tell was that, that you you once bought a stock whilst high on painkillers. Um, remind <laughs> me what what happened there. So this was 1999. I had to have all of my wisdom teeth removed. And so I was sitting at home after the surgery. Um, and for three days, my diet consisted entirely of milkshakes and painkillers. And uh, I had that's never breakfast. taken pain. Chris, that's <laughs> breakfast for me. Yeah, you and me, Paul. I had never taken painkillers uh, in my adult life. I, you know, I'm fortunate enough to be a pretty healthy person. And so I was just sitting on my sofa, um, just loopy from these painkillers. And this is 1999. The internet is, you know, barely up and running. Um, I shouldn't say barely up and running, but the, you know, the, the internet is nascent. There's no Netflix, there's, there's cable television and that's it. So I was sitting at home sitting on my sofa, high on painkillers, just channel flipping. And I came across uh, C-SPAN, you know, the, a, a government uh, uh, channel that mainly runs 
um, the United States Congress, but I guess Congress was out of session. And so they were showing um, a trade association in Washington, D.C. was having its annual meeting. And a CEO, um, a young man, was was speaking, giving sort of the, uh, you know, a keynote address to this industry association. And in the fog of, of my brain, I was listening to this guy and I just thought, this guy is brilliant. I, I just love everything he's saying. And I got off the sofa and um, went over to my desktop computer and logged on to my Ameritrade account. And I bought shares of his company because he, he ran a public company. They had just uh, gone public a couple of years earlier. And I thought, this guy's brilliant. And I don't know if you guys have ever had a night out where maybe you, you had one too many drinks and you, you wake up the next morning, you've got a bit of a headache, you're laying in bed and you, you think to yourself, you, you start reconstructing the night before. Yeah. And just think, well, what, what did I do last night? Did I, I, how did I get home? That sort of thing. I woke up the next morning and I thought I was laying in bed and I was, you know, my head hurt because I was taking the painkillers. And I thought, wait a minute, did I, did I buy shares of a company yesterday? <laughs> I, I think I might have done that. And I was very lucky in this regard that the trade association having its meeting was the Association of American Publishers, the book industry. And the young CEO who was talking to them was Jeff Bezos, and he was talking about his company, Amazon.com. And, um, you know, I'm lucky that it wasn't the CEO of Pets.com, which would, you know, <laughs> you know then, then, go, then go bankrupt and, and out of business and that sort of thing. So I, you know, I will, it's one of those things where I increasingly appreciate uh, luck. Um, when it comes along and I try to give credit to luck, there have been absolutely investments I have made um, that uh, have a healthy amount of luck attributed to my when I bought a stock and why I bought a stock. Mm. I was lucky that when I was high on painkillers, it was the CEO of Amazon.com. Um, I will take credit for continuing to hold that stock when two years later it fell 90%. Um, but just the, the initial purchase got lucky there. What was that like when Amazon dropped? I mean, first of all, I want to just say I love the idea of going out, getting drunk, and waking up next to, I don't know, Palantir stock and going, oh, what did I do? That's <laughs> I love that idea. I can see that being a joke for me in the future. But what did that feel like when Amazon just bottomed out in, in 2001. So it goes back to trying to separate what's happening with the stock with, from what's happening with the business. Um, the market overall was uh, taking a big hit, particularly unprofitable tech companies, which Amazon absolutely was at the time. But uh, a big part of why I continued to hold that stock was I was looking at how they were growing the business. Like, yes, they, they still weren't profitable. Um, in some cases, they were increasingly unprofitable, but they were growing their market share. They were making their investments. Um, and it's something that that company has done over the past 20 years. There have been periods, particularly when Jeff Bezos was CEO, where you could sort of look at what they were doing and you could conclude, oh, they are in an investment period. They could pull levers to be 
showing a profit this quarter, but they're not doing that. And sometimes the stock takes a hit and that's, you know, but you, you, at some point you have to trust that management knows what they're doing with the investments that they're making. Um, and I've been able to do that with other companies I own on occasion where I just sort of look at their results and say, okay, this is a, a period of time when they're investing in the business. Um, it didn't feel good, Paul. I mean, <laughs> you know, to see a stock drop 90%. I mean, that's a terrible feeling. But again, the reason I held on was I didn't need the money. And it's so important to be investing money where you don't need this money for at least five years. And I liked what I saw on the business side of things. And I thought, boy, if they can get through this, um, and it was touch and go for a little bit there, but I thought if they can get through this and come out the other side, uh, I think this is a, a, an investment that's going to pay off. Teladoc springs to mind actually on that uh, on that one at the moment. A company that looks like it could be profitable if it wanted to, and uh, it's going through a bit of a rough time at the moment. But still, the numbers appear to be going in the right direction, and that that was uh, that's one that sticks out for me at the moment. Sorry, Steve, what were you saying? I was going to say I feel like this story speaks to something that's it can't be that far removed from a thing that we have, right? We're UK investors, so the US market as of today because today is sunday when this goes out we've just flipped back over to daylight saving time the u.s market doesn't close till nine i mean there's definitely been kind of moments on a sort of friday evening where i've now that i invest off my phone and i've got my phone in my hand and i'm sat there in the evening and thinking oh buy stuff um i've spent most of this week like reading about stuff and i've done a fair bit of thinking about stuff and I'm really tired and I may have also been in the pub or something like that. And very <laughs> tempting to just kind of hammer something late on a Friday. I've done it once for what it's worth. I'm not saying what stock it was or how it's doing. Um, but I've also kind of thought, oh, I'm tired. I'm done with this DD stuff. It's Friday evening. It's bonfire night here. Um, I'm buying this thing. Due deal done, basically. Um, <laughs> But I definitely have some empathy with that story. Uh, mine's not gone as well as Amazon for what it's worth. It's not gone badly either, but it's not gone um, Amazon-wise. Yeah, it's, it's um, again, the, the role that luck plays, um, anytime you can give it credit, I feel like that's, if nothing else, that's just good karma to say, all right, I, I, I got lucky there. My, my oldest daughter, when she started to get curious about investing, she had a few stocks that um, uh, her grandfather had given her. And she was starting to ask questions and, you know, and so I thought, oh, here's an opportunity to teach her about investing. And I thought, okay, we're going to sell one of these stocks and we're going to buy something um, that uh, you can relate to. Um, and again, this, this, the strategy was sound. The way it worked out, I'm going to attribute to luck um, <laughs> because this transaction happened in August of 2008. The stock we sold was AIG, the insurance company that got crushed one month later. Um, the stock we did buy was Marvel Entertainment. Wow. Um, because at the time, Marvel was a standalone public company. They had a very fun investor relations website that included a section where you could create your own superhero, which is very entertaining for a, a young child to, um, to do. And so, um, and then I, I guess a year or so later, Disney bought them. So um, again, the, st the strategy was sound, but the, the, uh, the luck was, uh, was definitely in our favor as well. I've just got one more question for you, because I'm, I'm going to leave and leave Steve, the Steve's to the final part of this podcast. Uh, but 
Have you ever done a podcast with somebody in a moving vehicle before? <laughs> uh, I have not, so I guess no. I guess that's uh, you know I've done it in I've done it in a uh, you know a pub I've done it in um, nice. a couple of restaurant chains I've done yeah. it in a hotel lobby but no never a moving car. I'm currently on <laughs> lanes right now, and I feel and what it is what it is I, I'm, just before you finish that thought, Steve. I I just didn't want I, I need to leave because I feel bad for. My driver Dave right now, <laughs> who is here, and he's been sitting in silence for the past 40 minutes, so I feel very bad for him. So what I'm going to do is say thank you very much, Chris, for coming and doing this. It's an absolute honour having you on, it really is. And I'm probably going to uh, see you tomorrow. You won't see me, but I'll be listening to you on the Motley Fool podcast. Uh, thank you so much for making that. I, I, it's so entertaining, and I, I learn something new from it pretty much every day. So if anyone wants to listen to that, uh, uh, feel free to, to to listen to that and thank you so much Ed I'm going to get out of here and hang up and let the Steves uh, <laughs> continue with so Dave can talk to Pete right now alright thank you very much Chris uh, for coming cheers on. Paul love you Paul thank you I, I'm sure I speak for at least some of the listeners when I say I'm glad he was not the one driving <laughs> I, I, feel, I feel sorry for driver Dave but I'm happy that, that I Paul was not the one I assumed he was in driving. like some sort of FSD Tesla there but um, apparently not. The, Sorry, the, Steve, back to you. I was going to say, the irony of Paul being in a moving vehicle and having a better internet connection than when he sits at home <laughs> is not lost on me. Um, but let's shuffle on. Uh, I, I'd like to talk about the, the Motley Fool Money Show, if that's, a, if that's okay with you, Chris. Um, Absolutely. So um, just a little bit of background, I suppose, for everybody. Um, last time we talked about the, um, the Motley Fool Money Show, um, it was actually Chris that reached out to us to say thank you for giving us some, some feedback. And... Um, we thought, well, here, you know, let's 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 give it a go. Let's see if Chris will even consider coming coming and speaking to us. And, and I guess here we are. But um, I guess my question is, what, why, why have you amalgamated all of the the smaller podcasts into this super podcast? H- had it become too time consuming for everybody? And, and I guess what's the plan going forward for it? So, uh, for those unfamiliar, the Motley Fool, uh, our uh, Motley Fool money started in in two thousand nine. Uh, as a weekly show, and over the subsequent years, we we added um, two other weekly shows and two daily shows. Um, so, like a lot of businesses uh, during the pandemic, um, the Motley Fool, um, you know, took a we took a long look at everything we were doing. Um, we're we're constantly trying to um, improve what we're doing. Uh, the the bread and butter of the Motley Fool's business is. Um, is financial services, um, uh, investment newsletter services specifically. So people who are looking for um, stock research and recommendations and that sort of thing can subscribe and as you would to um, you know uh, a news outlet or, or, or Netflix for that matter. Hmm. Um, and so we looked at everything we were doing in terms of, of programming across the company. And so it was. It was just sort of a question initially that just sort of got thrown out there, like, you know, okay, if if we reimagined our podcast, if we started from scratch, what would that look like? Hmm. Um, and how could we sort of incorporate, you know, sort of what we're doing? Um, um, one of the people at the company compared it to uh, 
um, uh, the Avengers uh, Endgame movie with the the you know Thanos and getting hmm. sort of the the stones together. It's like you know if we if we combine these, does does one show become more powerful than than they were individually? <laughs> and sort of you know how could we do that? What would it look like? Um, and so we spent a lot of time trying to think of like how can we do this in such a way where we um, can um, preserve some of the things that we think we do a pretty good job of in terms of podcasting um, and. Um, knowing that we're going to lose people um, because change is hard, hmm. you know, just for change is hard in any aspect of your life. And so when you have a show that you listen to and that, and this is, this happened, has happened to me. I'm a podcast listener and there have been times where a show that I love, you know, one day the host just says, okay, we're, we're not going to be doing the show anymore. And I'm, I'm just crushed. So I, you hmm. know, I, I know that feeling where the show that you love is going away and what's replacing it may make up for it, or it may not. Um, and so what we've tried to do is um, uh, just provide the sort of the best content we can in the way that we provide it, while also leaving room for testing a lot of different things. You know, we knew going into the change that one of the things we would be able to do that we really weren't able to do beforehand is test a lot of different topics hmm. and constructs um, and even voices you know um, uh, the name of the company is the motley fool and we we, we thought th we could make this show more motley. we could have more people on this show hmm. if um, if what we're asking of them is hey we want you to come on and talk about this one thing in this one segment because for you know for people who who don't podcast um, uh, it can be a little daunting. Uh, to feel like, well, I, I wait, I have to speak into a microphone and you're going to record me. You know, it's it's one of those things that I think um, the three of us and, and Paul are, are abnormal in, in that regard. Like we're more comfortable speaking into a microphone than the average person. Hmm. Um, so so that was really sort of the way we were thinking about it. And, um, you know, we we what's the plan going forward? Um, we're we're going to keep testing new things. Um, we're going to. Uh, try and get, you know, other guests on the show that we haven't had before. Um, and uh, hopefully just continue to be a place where we can provide perspective on what's happening. Because when, when something happens, when a company like Okta has a security breach, there are a lot of investors and there are a lot of members of Motley Fool Services who turn to our company and turn to the podcast to say, okay, I've seen this news that affects this company in my portfolio. What do you think about this? So we want to be able to do that, but also, as we've been doing on the weekend, sort of take time to step back and, and uh, in some cases, provide almost a classroom approach to say, mm. okay, for those of us who didn't take an economics class, let's, let's spend 20 minutes talking about um, four metrics that um, you can use to evaluate a company. So, Steve tells the story perfectly correctly, by the way, about how um, Chris kind of came to be on our show. I mean, he leaves out a couple of details along the way that I'll just kind of draw attention to here. Uh, when we said what we thought about the new Motley Fool format, we were, we were pretty authentic. We said what we quite liked about it, and we also were fairly upfront about what we thought we might miss as well. Um, and Chris, in response to us saying how much we disliked his new format, uh, was kind enough to donate to our <laughs> one, um, because he's that kind of guy and, and we're not. Um, but I had a question about the new um, structure, for what it's worth. Um, 
So I was wondering whether the new structure means that we'll get less of the Chris Hill soliloquies that we sometimes used to get on Market Foolery. So the old classics, like it's the mud that makes us, and the stuff around Thanksgiving and, and so on and so forth. It now feels to me like that kind of first segment, the bit that sort of was Market Foolery, I guess, if we can call it that. That now feels like there's always going to be a guest there. Am I right about that? Um, I think so, but you're, uh, I appreciate your question. Uh, you're very kind, and it's, it's a question I've gotten from other people. Um, so it's something, um, uh, let's just say it's on the back burner from now, uh, for now, and, and at some point I think if, if I feel like it's appropriate, I, I, I may do that in the future. Um, that was, and the, the way that started in the first place was really just um, you know, Market Foolery was our daily show, and it was it was me and one or two of our analysts talking about the news of the day. But you know, once or twice a year, after the first couple of years, I um, would do what David Gardner does most weeks, which is I, I went into the studio and just talked by myself. But it, it, but I would only do it when I felt like I I had something to say, something of value to say, um, where it's like, oh, mm-hmm. I I think I have a story here, and I think it, I think there's a, an investing takeaway for people because I didn't want to just tell stories about my life, um, and so so yeah, I think if uh, at some point later in the year, if if I feel like there's an opportunity that that makes sense, then yeah, that that'll probably happen. We'll be listening for it then. In that case. The sucker's going up. Um, so when we have guests on, we always like to kind of finish in the same way. We always like to finish with a kind of little quick fire round that we call things like Sven Carl in or Sven Carl out or Bry in or Bry out or as we're calling it this week, um, uphill or downhill. Uh, so we have nice. a list of stocks that we'll uh, fire out one at a time. That one, Steve's, by the way. Um, uh, and uh, Chris, just a, a sentence or two on whether you think the stock is going up hill uh, that's the better version i think we uh, agree yeah. here, or whether it's going down uh hill downhill being sort of generally better but downwards uh in general uh it might be i don't think we've sent chris this list before so it might be that no. he doesn't really have a view that's absolutely fine uh pass them on if you like but let's go uh uphill or downhill first stock intel i don't own intel but i would say uphill um the industry they're in is an important one um their ceo uh, seems like the right leader at the right time. So, uh, yeah, I would say uphill. Cool. I think this is one that you earn, um, Adobe. Adobe, huge software company, uh, uphill. Absolutely. This is uh, a great business. Um, I, I don't have a huge stake in it, but, uh, yes, I am absolutely bullish. Uh, uphill for Adobe. Okay, this is one that I wish I'd known more about before uh, we started this podcast. Um, but it's going to be all tech companies otherwise. <laughs> Starbucks? <laughs> what is the highest uphill we can get? Is it Mount Everest? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I am Mount Everest on Starbucks for this reason. I don't know what technology is going to look like in 40 years. I don't know what vehicles are going to look like. I don't know what driving is going to look like. I know what coffee consumption looks like in 40 years. The way we get coffee in our bodies, and it's a legally addictive uh, substance, everybody. The way we get it in our bodies in 40 years is the same way we get it now. Very uphill on <laughs> Starbucks. <laughs> so, uh, Mercado Libra. 
Mercado Libre uphill. Uh, that is a business I was late to. Um, I finally jumped in, and that's another thing uh, that I've had to fight against, as a lot of investors do, just the whole idea of, well, this stock has already gone up a lot. Hmm. I, I, I don't want to buy it now. I want to wait for it to fall. Um, but Mercado Libre, um, the way they've grown their e-commerce, um, expanded into payments, um, it's an impressive business, and yes, uphill for sure. Tencent. I'm going to pass on Tencent. I, uh, Too difficult. Companies that are based in China are in that category of stocks I mentioned earlier. Um, I'm happy to miss out on the gains because I don't feel like I have an edge. And I feel like if I bought Tencent or Alibaba or even JD.com, which is a company that my... Uh, a friend and colleague Bill Mann thinks very highly of. I feel like I would be losing sleep over over those stocks, mm. so I'm going to pass on Tencent. So 3M, and I guess they've got sort of frightening times ahead for them potentially. I'm going to say downhill for 3M. Just uh, and look, I love Post-it notes as much as the next person, <laughs> but uh, it's 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 hard to um, get excited about 3M. Mm. I don't think this company is going away. I don't think this company is in trouble. Um, I just think that uh, we talked earlier about diversification and how do you allocate your money. And at some point, I think uh, many investors look in terms, particularly as they get older, they look in terms of, well, you know, what we refer to the blue chip stocks, the dividend mm. payers. I think if you're looking in that category of stocks, I think there are better companies like Johnson & Johnson um, than a company like 3M. I, I know it had a good run for a while, and it's not going away, but uh, I'd say downhill. Good. I was getting worried we weren't going to have anything going downhill. Well done, Steve. Uh, Meta Platforms. Boy, Meta Platforms. I'm having trouble thinking of a more debated company. Um, maybe Tesla is in there. Um, Tesla is certainly number one in terms of how people, how strongly people feel about it. Tesla bulls are so bullish and the bears are so bearish. Meta platforms, I'm going to say uphill for the reason that, and I don't own shares. I'm going to say uphill because I do think that they will figure out a way to make the metaverse work for them. I think that um, for all of the flack that the company takes, um, and I'm not saying it's entirely undeserved, um, it continues to be a company that makes a lot of money. It is so dominant in what it does. Um, and so I think betting against meta platforms is a bet I'm not interested in making. So I'll say uphill. So um, second to last one. Uh, so we thought it was a notable absentee from your portfolio. Um, Salesforce. Salesforce. Are, are there are there hills with plateaus? I think <laughs> I, I here's the thing about Salesforce, because, it, yes, it, it, it is uh, an impressive company. I think Mark Benioff is very impressive. Um, I'm, I'm tempted to push this, but in the interest of, of going with the binary choice, I'm actually going to say downhill. Um, 
uh, again, I don't think it's going to zero. I don't think it's going away. I think that they are, um, I'm sorry to use this analogy, but I'm going to use an analogy of the beer industry. That Samuel Adams Beer Company um, had a very good run. It's the company that owns Samuel Adams. It had a good run. And then it just sort of got to this middle space of the beer industry. And for the podcast listeners, uh, Steve W. has his hands over uh, but his They face, will know so this. Anyone who's been listening to this will know oh, what okay. I'm doing right now. Um, so they, they just sort of hit that middle space where they weren't the mass market beer like Budweiser's and you know that sort of thing. And they weren't a craft beer. And so they kind of got squeezed out. I, 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 that's When I look at Salesforce, and I've had this thought for a while, I wonder if they are entering that middle space hmm. where they have enough going for it that they are still growing, but they're not able to grow at the rate that they were before. I think it is wonderfully optimistic of Mark Benioff to take on another co-CEO when the last time he took on co-CEO, it did not work out at all. <laughs> um, so, you know, who knows? This may be a pathway of, of Benioff just handing the company off. But I, I, it's for as as well as that company has done, for as much as, as they've grown, I, I uh, not not with my money. Okay, last one. Uh, I think also not with your money on this one, as in you don't own shares, I think. Berkshire Hathaway. Boy, I mean, Berkshire Hathaway. What uh, Another mistake on my part for never buying shares of that, for never recognizing when I was younger that it would have been fine just to take a little bit of money, buy a couple of those B shares, and just never think about it again. Um uh, and maybe I should because I, 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 I'm actually uphill on Berkshire Hathaway. Um, I know that, um, you know, the age of, of Buffett and Munger is, is probably on plenty of people's minds, but he's so meticulous. He's, he's been planning for this. Like the, the company is going to be in good hands. Um, and the discipline um, is just enviable, uh, as we talked about earlier. That you know, he he could have he could have bought any number of things, but Buffett's been so disciplined that he wasn't going to overpay for Allegheny Insurance and just waited until it got to a price where he could buy it. So I think the the longtime lieutenants um, at Berkshire Hathaway are going to do uh, great things when they are eventually running the con- company on their own. Good. Feeling a lot happier now. That seems like a decent place for us to end uh, in that case. Um, so thank you so much for being on our show, uh, Chris. It's been really, really great having you. been really great chatting. Um, thank you to everyone that's been listening at home as well, uh, uh, those of you that there are. Um, please do like and subscribe to our um, channel. Leave us a review on Spotify, uh, YouTube, Apple's podcasting, Google Podcasts, Audible, wherever it is you're listening to us from. Um, and we will hopefully see you next time with Paul in some sort of more static environment.